This program is made possible by the members of the show. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Young Turks, The Colbert Report, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, On the Media, and Citizen Radio with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Young Turks. We had senior advisor David Axelrod, advisor of the president on the program last night. I asked him a question, obviously paraphrasing. Uh, my question uh, was something like this. Why is so up? <clears throat> I am the most trusted journalist. This is his uh, answer. In retrospect, we would have liked to move faster on the MMS situation. But understand uh, that we're all, we are also dealing with the economic crisis uh, and, 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 and the, the wars. And not to mention this oil spill that we can't... Oh, right. Hmm. That's what he's talking about. Now, the folks at Fox and Friends took some exception to his answer. Let me interpret. <laughs> yeah. Can I on. interpret that for you? Yes, Go ahead. Please. It's Bush's fault. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's the interpretation. That's so weak. That was just so unserious of, of Axelrod. Okay, first of all, you guys watch our show? <laughs> Do you show it at your morning meetings and then everyone just sort of stands around pointing and laughing at it? And then, and then do you make this face while you're watching it? And have you ever turned to the other people in the room and go, we can't make fun of these people every day. As funny as it would be, we can't do it every day on the show. We just can't. Yes, yes, of course, the jokes write themselves. And yes, I agree. Just playing it and making a stupid face would be enough. But we can't. I know we're working on a book and we're exhausted. People are frazzled. We haven't had a break in months and Jezebel thinks I'm a sexist prick. Every night, the ghost of Jack Parr is in my ear. Just walk away, Stuart. Walk away. <laughs> is, is that what you guys do? Because, because we don't. Anyway, you were talking. You can't continue to blame Bush. You can't continue to blame Cheney. They blame everything on our former President Bush. People wake up that are partisans and they have a sniffle and they blame my brother. B-I-O-B, that's blame it on Bush. Oh, yeah, B-I-O-B. Well, H-R-W-T-P-I-T-H-R-T-C-I-T-G. He really was a terrible president that ran the country into the ground. See, that's a very common acronym. <laughs> Want to see my favorite don't blame Bush talking point of, of all time? Ladies and gentlemen, I give you old man Carter. I actually heard, I believe, that somehow this oil spill is now George W. Bush's fault. Uh, it reminds me of the game, the Kevin Bacon game, that no matter your job is, no matter what actor or movie you attach you lay out before the public, you got to bring it back in seven cycles to Kevin Bacon. All right, listen, I, I, I don't need seven cycles to trace this spill to Bush. I don't even need six degrees, which is the actual way you play the Kevin Bacon game. But because the oil spill is the result of the Mineral Management Service's decision to stop regulating natural resources and start regulating how much coke they were sniffing off of oil executives' asses. <laughs> A decision they made during the administration of George W. Bush, who was played by Josh Brolin, <laughs> who starred in Hollow Man with... From the, the, I, got, I got from the Gulf disaster to Kevin Bacon in, in only five cycles. <laughs> what, what were we talking about? Ah, maybe we're so quick to blame Bush because a lot of bad stuff did happen during his presidency. I mean, I remember we were barely two months into Bush's presidency when the economy started to tank. 
the Clinton economy and the near recession we're in because it's the Clinton economy. This is the Clinton recession and the Clinton economy. Yeah, that is, uh, that is okay, that's a fair point, that is true. The first thing I, I think of when I think of the Clinton years is bad economy. <laughs> and the second thing I think of is a lack of oral sex scandals. <laughs> But, but, to be fair, Bush had only been in office for two months when the recession hit, so, okay, fair point. And he had only been in office nine months on 9-11, so the statute of limitations on blaming Clinton then. There were opportunities to take out this uh, Al-Qaeda's leadership. President Clinton really evaded this issue. Ah, blame Clinton for 9-11, too. So the first policy that Bush had to own for his own presidency was the invasion of Iraq in March 2003. According to Republicans, 18 months is apparently the cutoff point for blaming the old guy. And at that point, when he invaded Iraq, Bush had been in office for 26 months. It was the, it was the policy of the Clinton administration to have uh, regime change in, in Iraq. So in a way, George Bush carried out what Bill Clinton wanted to do. Yes, the George W. Bush administration wanted no part. They had no beef with the rock. But what could they do? Clinton made them pinky swear. So wow, almost all the way through Bush's first term. And he's still just buried underneath Clinton's failed policies. Well, finally, in 2005, there was that flare-up with North Korea when the United States ended direct diplomacy with them and the Bush presidency began. Trouble could be brewing in North Korea, but is it all the fault of Bill Clinton? Clinton! <laughs> all right, f it. Let's just jump ahead to 2008 and the collapse of the housing market. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae were two organizations run by Democrats that was abused by, by the Clinton administration. I might sure. just be cynical that yeah. the, this is a scandal that can date back clearly to the Clinton administration. You can go back to the Community Reinvestment Act under President Carter and all the things that uh, President Clinton did. <laughs> At that point, Bush had been in office almost eight whole years and had yet apparently to have an impact. <laughs> Which brings us back full circle to the very show that said it was inappropriate for the Obama administration to mention the Bush administration when talking about the wars or the economy or the regulatory environment that helped lead to the oil spill. I give you that same show two weeks prior. Explain what right. happened during the uh, Clinton administration that impacted what is going on right now in the Gulf. Congress, President Clinton's urging, passed legislation exempting the oil companies from any payment to the government for royalties for drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. But it it's why we had all this new drilling in the Gulf. Right, it started under Clinton. Do you realize that this is being broadcast <laughs> and recorded? So everything bad that happened during the Bush administration was Bill Clinton's fault. And now, everything bad during the Obama administration is Bill Clinton's fault. <laughs> who, by the way, was played by John Travolta in Primary Colors, who was in Carrie with Piper Laurie, who was in The Faculty with John Stewart, who, who, is banging Kevin Bacon. This story is so telling about the establishment media in America. Uh, they did a study uh, to try, it's Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, 
uh, and they looked at newspaper stories on the issue of waterboarding going all the way back to 1930 to now. And they found two startling facts. Between 1930 and 2004, 2004 is when we realized we found out we were waterboarding uh, detainees. In that time period, there was absolute clarity in the newspapers. So uh, in that time period, uh, the New York Times characterized waterboarding as torture or implied that it was torture in 81.5% of the articles that it covered the story. The Los Angeles Times did so in 96.3% of the articles. So when they mention waterboarding, they call it torture an overwhelming majority of the time. So between 2004 and 2008, that probably didn't change, right? Because it, there's the legal definition of waterboarding being torture. There's no question about it, right? That's why they were clear on it earlier. You're not going to be surprised to find out that in 2004, it changed completely. Um, they said, in contrast, the newspapers almost never referred to waterboarding as torture. For example, the New York Times called waterboarding torture or implied it was torture in just two out of 143 articles. That's only in 1.4% of the articles. Los Angeles Times only, only referred to it as torture in 4.8% of the articles. The Wall Street Journal characterized it as torture in only 1.6% of the articles, and the USA Today never called it torture, okay, in the new time frame. And, and there's a little bit of overlap because the new time frame actually is between 2002 and 2008 in this study, okay? So let's take the Los Angeles Times, for example. Before the Bush administration objected to calling it torture, they're calling it torture 96% of the time. After, they're only calling it torture 4% of the time completely flipping it on its head. Okay, now, that's perfect telltale sign of, oh, yes, sir, uh, the government says so? Absolutely, sir. The government says it's no longer torture. Stop calling it that, even though it's the obvious definition. And, oh, Republicans object? Oh, Republicans object? No, 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 we just change everything, okay? Now, don't worry about the truth. He said, she said. Just get a fake neutrality right in the middle. Who cares what their objective reality is? But here comes an extra twist on it that's all, it's even more maddening. In that si same time period, 2002 to 2008, when the New York Times, LA Times, etc., covered other countries doing waterboarding, they still called it torture. So get a load of these stats. New York Times, uh, in 85.8% of the articles, when other countries did waterboarding, called it torture. When the U.S. did it, 7.69% of the time. When the United States, uh, in the LA Times, when other countries did it, 91.3% of the articles, they called it torture. When the U.S. did it, 11.4% of the time, they uh, called it torture. So again, flipped on its head. Okay, within the same time frame that they studied the other cases. So when somebody else does it, torture. When we do it, well, it's debatable. Come on, we're the United States. We're the shining city on a hill. Okay, well, obviously, if we're doing it, it can't be torture. I mean, like the serious. <laughs> Is it, wait, are we doing it any differently? No, we're doing the same exact thing. So when you ask the New York Times about this, and Michael Calderon, now working for Yahoo, asked them, uh, this is their answer. Uh, quote, as the debate over interrogation of terrorist suspects grew post 9-11, defenders of the practice, including senior officials of the Bush administration, insisted that it did not constitute torture. Well, if the government insists, well, then obviously you should change your definition, right? Uh, they continue, when using a word amounts to taking sides in a political dispute, our general practice is to simply supply the readers with the information to decide for themselves. So you change the definition of the word because the Republicans yelled at you. I, I, there it is. I, that's exactly what they're saying. Well, there was a dispute over it. What could we do? There, before, we used to call it a decapitation when you took somebody's head off, but the Republicans have objected, so we're now calling it head restructuring. What, what, what? But get this, there's a third twist to it. The New York Times also says, oh, we believe that waterboarding does meet the legal and moral definition of torture. The legal definition of torture. Yes, we believe that. That's why we allow our opinion writers to call it torture. <laughs> but I'm not asking for your opinion, dude. Okay, I'm not asking you to take sides. I'm asking you, what is the truth? What is the legal definition? 
And if you call it torture when another country does it, you called it torture before the Bush administration did it, you should call it torture afterwards. And it doesn't mean that you, you should say, all right, it's bad. That, that is sh for your opinion page. Now, if the American people decide, no, Bush is right, we should torture people, okay, we've become an ugly and hideous country, but that's what they've decided. I'm not asking you to rule on that. I'm asking you to keep your definitions consistent. But they're willing to bend the truth to appease Republicans and to appease the people in power. And that is why our establishment media sucks. They do not do their job. They do not give you the news. They don't give you the truth. They give you the twisted version of truth, which is somewhere between the radical right and the Democrats, which are basically center right. So there's your truth now. Pathetic. Pathetic as usual. Where do you go with your broken heart and soul? And what do you do with the left over you? And how do you know when to let go? Where does the good go? Where does the good go? Speaking of white people co-opting black culture, Glenn Beck. <laughs> Folks, there is more exciting news from Casper the Frenzied Ghost. As regular viewers know, I have been following Glenn Beck's plan to hold a rally at the Lincoln Memorial on August 28th, the same place and date as MLK's I Have a Dream speech. Now some say choosing this date proves Glenn is an egomaniac. But I say his ego has nothing to do with him being a maniac. <laughs> he is doing all of this for other people. 100 years from now or 200 years from now, I believe this will be remembered as the moment America turned the corner. As we create history together, your children will be able to say, I remember, I was there. Uh, as, we, as we pick up Martin Luther King's dream, that has been distorted and lost. It's time to restore it and to finish it. Finally, someone is bringing Martin Luther King's movement back to its conservative white roots. <laughs> now, folks, it's a little known fact. They only turned those fire hoses on to cool down the black protesters. What the pictures don't show are the slip and slides just out of frame. <laughs> Besides, you can't criticize Glenn for picking this place and this date. It wasn't even his idea. It is the anniversary of the I've, I Have a Dream speech from Martin Luther King. And what an appropriate day. At first, we picked that date. We didn't know, and I thought, oh, geez. But I, now, now I think it was almost divine providence. I do. Divine providence. That means it was God's idea. And I believe it's divinely inspired because whenever I tell people what he's doing, they always say, holy <laughs> So, the question is, the question is, is Glenn Beck being guided by God? Yahweh or no way? Well, in this case, I'm gonna have to say, Maybe way. <laughs> now, thank you. Now, personally, I take everything Glenn says on faith because there's never any evidence to back up his claims. But this time, Glenn has a witness from a higher authority. Beautiful dawn lights up the shore for me. There is nothing else in the world I'd rather wake up and see with you Beautiful dawn 
this is actually from a court ruling issued this week, an actual legal excerpt. It sent shockwaves through the broadcasting industry. The digestive system and excretion are also important areas of human attention. So that federal appeals court decision <laughs> decided that the FCC can no longer fine people for what? Uh, profanity? Exactly, or fleeting obscenity is the rule. So let's say you're entertaining at the Super Bowl halftime show, like so many of us have. <laughs> and you happen to be standing next to Janet Jackson, and she's wearing some kind of metal bra, and you say to yourself, as anyone would, hey, let's see what's under that. <laughs> well, good news, an appeals court has now said the FCC can't fine broadcasters for that kind of, quote, fleeting obscenity. Things that are obscene but are unplanned, that kind of action or an exclamation of joy or disgust. This means, of course, that we no longer have to have Carl Castle on an eight-second delay. Damn straight, Peter. <laughs> now that I think back on my life, almost everything obscene I've ever done was both fleeting and unplanned. There you are. <laughs> <laughs> You mention it. I spent most of my adolescence planning obscenities, but they never happened. It was frustrating. Anyway, uh, it, it does free Carl up, like we said. Right after the decision was handed down, Carl recorded a brand new voicemail greeting for one of our winners. Stay on this phone and don't hang up with me. I, can. I have plenty of energy to drive over there. You understand me? So just f listen to me. <laughs> I actually thought I worked on the only radio program in America that wasn't going to run the Mel Gibson Oh, wow. Well. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. plans to hold a rally on the same date and location as Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Now, to do that, it's going to take a swinging sack of moral authority. <laughs> Luckily, Glenn has it. I was uh, in the Vatican. And I was surprised that the individual that I was speaking to even knew who I was. And they said, of course we know who you are. What you're doing is wildly important. We're entering a period of great darkness. I'm sorry, that took so long, I had a dream. Now... Now, in a Colbert Report exclusive, I reveal that individual who approached him at the Vatican. Please welcome the gossip columnist and rock critic from L'Observatore Romano, Father Guido Sarducci. <laughs> Father, good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a long-time fan. Uh, Father, i got to say, I, I love the new vestments. Does this, does, the new, uh, does this mean you've been made a Monsignor? No, uh, I haven't made it yet. You know, I worked on the point system, kind of like uh, frequent flyer miles. <laughs> Finally, I got enough. Then they say, blackout period. You know, so, I don't know. I, total I, scam, right? It is a total scam. I don't know. That care. is sad. You're going to make it. Now, now uh, Father... Are you, in fact, the unnamed individual at the Vatican who spoke to Glenn Beck? Yes, it, it was me, I admit it. Well, Father, what, what did you mean when you said we're entering a period of great darkness? Well, 
it was getting dark. It was like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And, you know, I said to him, you know, the later it gets, the darker it gets. And he's like, you know, it's a profound or something. The later it gets, the darker it gets. Yeah. You know. So I, I think he was on jet lag. Okay. You know, I don't know. But, but, did, but did you, in fact, say that his work was, quote, wildly important? Yes, but I didn't know who he was. I, I thought it was. What do you mean? Why would you, why would you say that if you didn't know who he was? What I, do you mean? I thought it was somebody else. Like what? Who? Jeff Beck. <laughs> yes, Jeff. You the, thought he was Jeff Beck? I thought. You know, he said Glenn Beck, but I heard Je Jeff Beck. I, you know, he's a great guitarist. Jeff he's a, Beck. from the Yardbirds. Yeah, right. absolutely. And he's right he's up one of the greatest. There, right up there with uh, Joe Walsh and uh, you know Jimmy Page and uh, Eric Clapton, all of them. Yeah. Wildly important. So that's why he was wildly important. Yes. But, but Father, Glenn Beck and Jeff Beck look nothing alike. I hadn't seen Jeff Beck a long time. People change, you know. Look at Christy Alley. Yeah. Now, so, so what, what, did you, what, what, what did Glenn say when you told him that his work was wildly important? Nothing. He started crying. <laughs> weeping. It was like the Trevi Fountain. I feel like... I should throw a coin in his face and make a wish. But, but here, here's, the, here's the point, Father, and maybe you can, you can speak to this as, as, as a man of God. Glenn is saying that God is giving him a plan. Do you think it's possible that Glenn Beck could, in fact, be a prophet? Well, it could be. I mean, he talks a lot. He hears voices. And uh, uh, he's unstable. That's, that's the, pretty much the whole package. Prophets, prophets are unstable? Most of them, or some of them, you know, like uh, they had unhappy childhoods, like Moses. You know, how would you feel if your mother put you in a river in a, in a picnic basket? You know what I mean? That's tough love, we yeah, call absolutely. it. absolutely. And don't forget Jeremiah. He thought he was a bullfrog. Three dog night, I said it. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard that. I've heard right, that. Right. Well, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. It, it is possible that Glenn Beck is a prophet. Uh, before you go, um, Father, what I just no, I, would you just answer this question for me? What, what, what do, do you agree with observatory? No, I am shaking your hand. Thank Absolutely. You. Do, Thank you. Do, do you agree with Observatory Romano saying the Blues Brothers is a deeply Catholic movie? Yes, I stand by my review. That was you. That was yes, and and now we approve of all John Landis movies and the videos. Really, you you, you even approve of Thriller? Especially Thriller. That's the Pope's favorite. I think that's because a lot of the zombies, I think they look a little bit like them, you know? It's the eyes. It is the eyes. Well, You're thank right. you, Father. Okay, thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. Father, uh, we, what you're doing, I want to tell you, what you're doing is wildly important. <laughs> Keep it up. Father, right. Guido Sarkucci, everyone. I know, because I've seen it. It was great, and I want it. There's no point sitting. Torture as an official designation does not constitute a crime in state legal codes. It does nationally. We've seen the issue aired over and over again in the age of terrorism, as in this 2007 exchange between Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a Rhode Island Democrat, and Attorney General nominee Michael Mukasey during his confirmation hearings. Just to finish that thought, is waterboarding constitutional? I don't know what's involved in the technique. If, it, if waterboarding is, is torture, torture is not constitutional. That's a massive hedge. I mean, it either is or it isn't. Do you have an opinion on whether waterboarding is constitutional? If it amounts to torture, it is not constitutional. I'm very disappointed in that answer. I think it is purely semantic. Sorry. 
We've had lots of discussions with media critics, newspaper editors, even NPR's ombudsman, over whether media outlets should apply the word torture to waterboarding, even if the term carries a heavy load of controversy or contention. Malcolm Nance, a former instructor at the U.S. Naval Survival Evasion Resistance and Escape School in San Diego, who prepared soldiers to withstand torture in part by waterboarding them, told us that no one should parse words when reporting on it. Waterboarding is intended to put water down into your throat, into your trachea, and then uh, with enough water into your lungs. You are drowning. What phrase do you think the media ought to use? Drowning torture. Back in 2007, we called Los Angeles Times national editor Scott Kraft for a second opinion. I think I'd be reluctant to call it drowning torture just because torture has become a politically charged word. It's actually at the very center of what, why we're even writing about it. He was by no means alone in this view. We spoke to the Chicago Tribune and other papers. Our unscientific study suggested that his view was widely held, that journalistic impartiality demanded that serious news outlets steer clear of that semantic swamp. Recently, researchers at Harvard's Joan Shorenstein Center conducted a quantitative analysis of how waterboarding has been characterized at a few major American papers going back more than a century. Over the entire lifespan of the newspapers, that's stretching back to as far as the 1850s for the New York Times, when the United States was their perpetrator, the practice was almost uniformly not called torture. That was Neil Desai, one of the researchers on the study. We'll be hearing more from him in a moment. This is On the Media from NPR. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. As I mentioned, recently Harvard's Joan Shorenstein Center published a paper by students called Torture at Times, Waterboarding in the Media, in which they studied articles in USA Today, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Los Angeles Times, and found that for most of their history, they, quote, consistently classified waterboarding as torture. But after 9-11, things changed. The researchers also coded the stories for how waterboarding was characterized. Was it negative or soft or was torture implied and so on? The study has been both celebrated and derided. Harvard Law School student Neil Desai was one of its authors. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Could you summarize your lead findings? I think there are two main findings of the paper. The first is that for about 70 years before 2004, the newspapers almost uniformly called waterboarding torture. After 2004, the newspapers virtually never called the practice torture. And the second main finding is that over the entire lifespan of the newspapers, that's stretching back to as far as the 1850s for the New York Times, when the United States was their perpetrator, the practice was almost uniformly not called torture. Some of the only incidents after 2004 where waterboarding was unequivocally called torture on the news pages was when it was being carried out by other countries? That's true. The Wall Street Journal had one piece that called waterboarding torture, and it dealt with East German history. One of the two articles that the New York Times referred to the word torture was about Chile and, again, had no mention of the United States. Some of the categories you had for the treatment of torture in these articles seem pretty subjective. They're called negative treatment, softer treatment. The big divide was, I think, between softer treatment and negative treatment. And those we broke down upon whether or not the term used had a necessarily negative connotation. So for negative treatment, something like brutal or inhuman, because no matter how you look at that, it is a negative term. Softer treatment terms were things like harsh or coercive or controversial. These, while they can be viewed negatively, don't necessarily have a negative connotation. But you don't code a detailed description of the process of waterboarding as negative, even though it might come across as very negative to a reader. That's true. Any simple description of the practice we termed just no treatment, because the narrative voice was not characterizing the practice. How do you define a narrative voice? 
We looked to see how the paper itself was coming through. What was the choices that were being made? How were the the paper speaking, as it were? Because many editors that we spoke to about the semantic treatment of waterboarding throughout the last couple of years have said that by describing it, the reader gets a very complete idea of how horrible this practice is and that they don't have to use inflected adjectives. Most papers shy away from that kind of language when dealing with any subject. And that very well could be what's happening. It's for others to decide whether or not the categorizations are right. How did you deal with stories that use other people calling it torture? As in, for example, critics suspect the tapes contained evidence of waterboarding, which international human rights groups and others have denounced as torture. That was a separate category that we had, and what we saw was that in a number of times that it was being used to balance softer treatment terminology. So an article would call the practice harsh, and then a few sentences later would say, or even in that sentence itself would say, it is a practice that human rights organizations call torture, or many call torture. But you didn't count it as calling it torture. No, because it was an editorial choice to include that, but it wasn't the voice of the paper itself. Editorial pages all across the country were calling this torture. Couldn't your findings just be evidence that newspapers were moving everything that could be classified as opinion to the opinion pages? It could be read that way. We did look at the opinion pages, and we found that, in general, about 50% of opinion pieces called the practice torture. Do you worry that your classifications may be presenting a picture of the American press as pusillanimous weenies who generally are afraid to use the term once it becomes politically freighted? I think our classifications are fair. We didn't come into this into the study looking to prove a conclusion. We came interested in the question. Hopefully we've been very transparent about exactly the findings that we have, and then we'll let others draw conclusions based upon those findings. It's fascinating that you chose to quantify this. Why did you? We quantified it because if you have a specific basis to go upon, you can really focus in on the issues without the debate over what the facts are. So now we know the facts that at least four large papers did not use the word torture when the U.S. was waterboarding, but did when other countries were waterboarding. That's the issue you wanted to get us closer to by doing this study, right? Exactly. It's generated a lot of debate, and I think that's very positive. What's the reaction that you've gotten? We've only heard from the New York Times, and we have their response in writing. They characterized the study as uh, misleading and tendentious and said that the decision to recharacterize the practice was done because it was a contentious issue and they didn't want to prejudge. Blame it on the way that I talk. You can blame it on the way that I look. You can blame it on the stuff that I drank and the pills that I took. Tell me a lie If it's true Have you done all the things I never wanted you to Finally, I have a story that is depressing to the point where it may negate everything we've ever done on this show. See you later. Oh. Uh, I'm going down to the pool. Oh, Jamie's, Bye. uh... he's Bye. Wa- He's walking to the door. Get... Oh, Allison here. Kilkenny, flying solo. Citizen Radio. Oh. I'm taking on the curtains. Oh, he's in the curtains. I'm taking on the curtains. Jamie. All right. All right. Hey. You're, you're right. Uh, well, it was, a, it was a journey. That looked precarious. Okay. You okay? Yeah, I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna go poop in the corner. So there was a study. By the way, you have embraced me for what this fucking sad story is, so I don't know. know. So you're gonna get my legitimate reaction on the air. Yes. At the University of Michigan. Okay, it's okay. Uh, they did a study that basically showed that people don't really like facts. They like what they already believe, and then when they are confronted 
with facts that dispute what they believe to be true, yeah. they ignore them. Oh, yeah, that's fine. I do that. Now, here's the thing. Here's the really interesting thing about this. That's horrible because, you know, in, in journalism, you're like, oh, if I present these people with the facts, they'll change their mind and see the light. That right. is very rarely the case. It does happen, but it's exceedingly rare. Here's the interesting thing. When conservatives are confront people who claim to be conservative are confronted with facts that dispute their pre-existing knowledge. This isn't going to go well. They react so angrily <laughs> that they end up being more entrenched right. in their wrong ideas than they were before. Oh, no. Liberals aren't that much better, but there's an interesting difference. When they're confronted with facts, they ignore them. But they don't get angry and more entrenched. Right. We're so snobby. Yeah. We're I don't just have sort the of time like, to be angry with you. I believe it sounds a little something like this. Meh. 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 The Clarence Thomas meh. meh. Which is weird because he is a conservative. So he would be angry. Meh. 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 More entrenched. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's a little disconcerting just because we were just talking about global warming, right? And you're like, if we present... The naysayers, the people who say climate change is not real, with the facts, yeah. indisputable scientific evidence from NASA. Yeah. And, yeah, so this is concerning because if you present these people with facts, and when I say these people, I mean conservatives and liberals, you know, if there are any liberals out there who don't believe in climate change. Whenever I say these people, I mean the Puerto Ricans. <laughs> yeah. We know, Jamie, and it's horribly <laughs> offensive. Oh, it's no Amish hating, Allison. Sorry. Who's going to defend the Amish? You tell me. And not me. They don't have a lobby. The Puerto Ricans. I can say whatever I want about them. <laughs> the Puerto Ricans won't even defend the Amish. They can't hurt me. They're never going to hear this, Jamie, because they don't believe in technology because they're fucking weird. Wow. <laughs> so, where the hell? Oh, right. So that's why no one will believe in climate change. <laughs> <laughs> so if you learn one thing. Okay. So here's why this is really, really scary. I've done this before. Yeah. I, I've actually done both things. I've done the conservative thing before where, like, if I – I remember when I was trying to quit smoking and I really didn't want to quit smoking. Although there was part of me that knew it was bad. So I guess Republicans don't have that. Like, they don't know – like, they really think it's right. Like, I knew smoking was bad. But if I saw, like, some douchebag fucking straight edge guy and someone was, like, really preachy and annoying, like, oh, if you smoke, you're going to meh, meh, meh. Then I would be like, oh, well, you just made me want to smoke more because I hate you. Yeah. And I did, but, but then conversely. To quit, I do the same thing. When I saw just losers fucking smoking or like these just dumb fucking slut girls smoking, I would be like, oh, you make me want to quit smoking. What I'm trying to say is I'm very impressionable. But I, I mean, I, I, I used to ignore facts that, you know, ran counter to my beliefs. But now I don't. I, I really do try to do research. But I mean, you know, you saw it in the healthcare debate where people were saying, you know, get your government hands off my Medicare. And then people would say, like, there was this naive part of me that I'm like, oh, that is actually, we shouldn't just make fun of that. We should see that as, you know, almost like a, a, a plea for help where we go, oh, no, 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 no. The government does run your Medicare. Don't you love it now? And then what you're saying they're going to do is and just attack and get mad. Yeah, maybe. I mean, so Digby posted this article and in wonderful Digby style, she was like, how can we reverse this awful trend? Not just in conservatives, but in liberals too, because this is really bad. This is, you know, this will end intellectualism as we know it. Uh, and she proposed, you know, or I think it was Digby proposed, just not being sensitive and trying to be open-minded and, you know, acknowledging that it's okay to be wrong, to teach kids it's okay if you fuck up. Yeah. Now, I want to write an article about this because I think it's actually a problem at large with our schooling systems that are just so cutthroat, so competitive. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. We don't teach students it's okay to be wrong. We teach students it's good to succeed no matter what. So that's why there's rampant cheating. Yeah. You know, um, a study was done just recently that showed most university students frequently cheat. I'm sure. And now why do they do that? I mean, the idea of going to university is to expand your knowledge. You You're don't, paying. You don't learn by there. cheating. <clears throat> The only reason they cheat is to excel because it is so frowned upon to be wrong. Right. Uh, if we, if we, you know, modify the educational system where 
failing wasn't so stigmatized, I think you would find people would be more open-minded yeah. and be more willing to listen to the other side of an argument. Well, you remember when we had Chomsky on the show one of the times? It may have been the first time. And he was talking about the school he went to where, like, they didn't really have grades and they encouraged... You know, and this was like like elementary school. It was like this really hippie school, and they encouraged like teamwork instead yeah. of this whole. You know, I mean, whenever you're being like rewarded for being the best, that means there is a slew of people who are not being rewarded for being the worst. Right. That was me, and that was one of the reasons I got the fuck out and dropped out because I was like, I'm an idiot. Or what a lot of other people do is they're envious of the people who are being rewarded, and they cheat, lie, steal, do whatever they have to to get to that level right. of reward. You right. Know? Well, because because why would anybody want to be punished their whole life? Right. And then that's why you have so many kids who go to business school because they've already been raised in this sort of culture of competition. So business school just enhances what they already know, which yeah. is just it teaches you, you know, the only goal is profit. You want to make more money than other people. You know, I was reading and I kind of want to talk about this in, at length maybe on Wednesday, but Peter Singer's new book, The Life You Can Save, talking about, you know, all the things we don't do for the poor. And by poor, I don't mean, you know, people who still have DVD players or whatever. By poor, we mean like girls who were dying at the age of two, you know what I mean? And who don't have food and people who live off a dollar a day. By the way, something I didn't know, whenever you hear that statistic, they live off of a dollar a day. You go, oh, well, a dollar is much less over there, or it's much more over there than it is here. But they actually do the math to make it, like, our dollar. Like, what a dollar is to us, that's what... So it's horrible. And anyway, but, you know, there are all these interviews with these terrible fucking rich people who don't give any money and have, you know, yachts who... And these yachts need, like, year-round crews, even though they read... they, They ride the yacht, like, three times a year. It's so disgusting. But some of these people in the Forbes, you know, richest men or women list, they just say, like, it's a competition. Yep. That's all it is, is we just want to see who's richer than the next guy. And it's a, it's a friendly competition. And all they care about is just collecting money. And, I mean, that starts in school where just you just learn to just acquire. Like, our only job on this planet is just to use. It's yeah. just to buy, use, shit, buy, use, shit, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, and what's amazing is, so somebody who's a CEO can't ever admit they're wrong, right? But once in a great while, somebody like, for example, Alan Greenspan came out and said, I was wrong about how I was running the economy the past few decades. I was wrong. And none of the neoconservatives, none of the the economic hawks that, you know, have totally embraced deregulation changed their mind. Yeah. None of them. They possibly, arguably, are more entrenched now. And that's the danger of that that kind of thinking, where it's like, you have been proven wrong. Right. Hyper-capitalism has failed. Right. Epically. It almost destroyed the world's economies. And yet, you still have people defending it. Yeah. I haven't brought this up. I used to say this a lot, but I haven't really brought this up since, I think, probably we were drunk in politics. But the fact that, arguably, what lost John Kerry the election... Over George Bush, and you got to remember, you know, Kerry was a fucking knob as well, but the main issue was the war, and you have George Bush who led us into this failing war, lied to, to get us into this war, and was a draft dodger, and then you have John Kerry who was a decorated soldier in Vietnam and then took his medals, threw them away in protest, and protested the Vietnam War. So it was this really great combination of, wow, you had the balls to fight this when you were called out, but then you had even bigger balls to, you know, protest it. And he lost, and the main reason he lost was once that flip-flop line, and and now you hear the line all the time, he's a flip-flopper. And it's like, well, that just means changing your mind, which means you're an adult and an intellectual, and that's a good thing. And I think that that, at that moment, it's like if this study wasn't true way back before then. Mm-hmm. I mean, this really solidified it where it's just like, no, changing your mind means you're fucking weak mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it is better for you to hold on to blatantly wrong principles than to grow yeah. like a normal human being. So it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to change your mind. 
I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Now, we were just telling you about how conservatives uh, are indifferent to your concerns because they don't understand it. They don't live in your world. They live in their world where everybody's perfectly rich and doesn't, don't need Social Security or Medicare or anything else. Now, we have a great example of that. Rush Limbaugh and his program is going to be talking about the free lunch program that kids who can't afford lunch get so they don't go hungry in the middle of the school day. Now, summer is coming up, so they won't be getting that free lunch anymore, and there's concern about, hey, are they going to have enough food to eat? But Rush lives in a mansion in Palm Beach. I read a book about it. He literally has his staff, his maids and his butlers, light scented candles before he comes into his house so that he has the right aroma in the house. He owns dozens of cars. He owns a $54 million jet. Okay, you know, he made that money however he made it. It's okay, I'm not begrudging it. But I'm just telling you that in the context of he doesn't understand what it means to be poor or to, or to be hungry. And he's going to give this incredibly condescending little segment on it. It starts out pretty bad and gets downright ugly by the end. This is what he thinks of poor people. Let's watch. Then, a companion story from uh, AOL News. Record number of U.S. kids facing summer of hunger. With the screwal year ending in communities across America, more than 16 million children face a summer of hunger. While classes were in session, they relied on free or discount. And this, of course, takes into no account that the parents, I guess, just can sit around and let their kids starve. Why, if the kids don't do it, they're going to starve. If the schools don't do it, the kids are going to starve. God, it's ins it's this is this is just ins it's. We can't escape these people. We just can't escape them. They live in the utter deniability of basic human nature. They actually have it in their heads somehow that parents are so rotten that they will let their kids go hungry and starve. Unless the schools take care of it. And I think, you know what we're going to do here? We're going to start a, a feature on this program, Where to Find Food. Uh, for young demographics, where to find food? Now that school is out, where to find food? We can have a daily feature on this. And this will take us all the way through the summer. Where to find food? And of course, the first will be try your house. It's a thing called the refrigerator. You probably already know about it. Try looking there. There are also things in what's called the kitchen of your house, called cupboards. And in those cupboards, most likely, you're going to find ding-dongs, Twinkies, Lay's Ridgy potato chips, all kinds of dip, and maybe a can of corn that you don't want. But it will be there. If that doesn't work, try a Happy Meal at McDonald's. You know where McDonald's is. There's the dollar menu at McDonald's, and if they don't have chicken McNuggets, dial 911 and ask for Obama. Uh, there's another place, if none of these options work to find food, there's always the neighborhood dumpster. Now, you might find competition with homeless people there, but there are videos that have been produced to show you how to healthfully dine and how to dumpster dive and survive until school kicks back up in August. Can you imagine the benefit we would provide people? What do you do with a guy this ugly? I mean, he, he lives, 
began in the book that I read about Rush Limbaugh. He, he goes and, you know, eats at the finest restaurants, has uh, waiters handing, waiting on him, hand and foot, etc. He's got this, he doesn't get it, man. He says, duh, go to your refrigerator. Yeah, Rush, did you ever think that they're poor? They might not have the same things in their fridge that you have. Did that ever frickin' occur to you? That maybe that they are embarrassed, but they go and t take this free lunch program or food stamps, even though th they hate taking it, but they do it because they don't have a choice because they got to feed their kids, and that they don't want them running through dumpsters. And look at that. I mean, at the end, he just came out and said, he's, the poor, you belong in dumpsters. I, I don't want to give you any of my money at all. No matter how much the government provided for me to get me to, to where I am, I don't care. I don't, I don't care about the community. I don't care about your family values. I don't care about anything. I just want to keep all my money. And if that means you kids have to play through dumpsters, then I laugh at you. <laughs> Why don't you find food in a dumpster? You know, people wonder, why do we think Rush Limbaugh is viable? That's why. Thanks for listening, everyone, and greetings from Netroots Nation. As per my usual production schedule for when I'm out of town, uh, I am coming to you uh, kind of from Netroots in that this show is posted while I'm at Netroots, but what I'm saying is actually being said before I left. So, in a sense, I'm sure all kinds of amazing stuff has happened that you are not going to believe, um, but I can't tell you about it yet because I don't uh, know what happened yet because I haven't experienced it. But believe me, in the last couple of days from when you're hearing this, some crazy stuff happened, and I'll be sure to tell you all about it when I get back. And then to throw in just a dash of irony for why I'm going to keep this commentary shorter than usual is because uh, even though this show's being posted while I'm at Netroots, I can't talk long because I have to go pack to get to Netroots on time uh, without missing my flight. So what I'm going to do is thank a couple of members, as I always do. Kellen D. signed up for his membership on uh, January 4th, uh, monthly membership, stuck with the show ever since then. Thank you very much, Kellen, for your help. And, uh, and Ian F. signed up for a, uh, a full year starting on February 21st. Huge thanks to Ian, Kellen, and all the members who make this show what it is. Without them, uh, you'd be lucky to get four shows a month, and um, and that would just be tragic for all involved. So that's it. I, I really wasn't kidding. I'm keeping it short today. Uh, you're welcome to the very narrow constituency of listeners who uh, both hate my commentaries at the end, think that I do a, a good show, but they don't like to hear what I have to say, and also have not found uh, or figured out how to make use of their fast-forward button. So to those of you, uh, you're welcome for keeping it short. To stay connected between shows, of course, you want to find us on Twitter and Facebook for details about the show. Find us on the website, bestoftheleft.com, where you'll find all the details, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white So took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to need A dying man in a living room Who shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I
Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change? More podcasts. Ten a month. And there's the iPod apps, the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers. And now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year Award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on just about every Thing. At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, food, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on. Not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon. And you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a big difference in our world, keeping the Best of the Left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced, heard, and passed on. I'm proud to be a part of that, and you will be too. Do your part. Do what you can. Thanks.